want to I want to set this up. I guess it's, it's ominous would be too heavy of a word, but this, beloved, this is an offensive passage, and I, I just I just want you to to kind of be able to settle in and and maybe pray in your own heart. I I don't mean that like I have something to say that I think is going to be offensive. I'm I'm being honest with you. The the text, First Corinthians one. 10 to 31 is offensive. It's an offensive passage. It had to be. We need Paul to break us as he needed to break Corinth at the outset of the letter so that what the Holy Spirit inspired here would be the means of our healing. Right? The, the Bible never breaks to keep broken. Uh, Paul doesn't, isn't, doesn't go so hard here because he wants to hurt these believers. He, he, there are things that need to be said and he says it, and so um, I hope that we can listen to it because sometimes that you know it can be. This is I've had the opportunity to preach through First Corinthians I think twice um, in my time as a pastor. In studying this, something it, it just it kind of leaps out at you. I don't know that I've 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 noticed it before, and it's it's just a you know it can be a heavy text, but it's also a, a wonderful text. It, we know the main point of Paul's letter to the Corinthians because he follows the pattern of writing letters in his day. Um, in Paul's world, letters had a designated pattern, much like uh, even business calls have in our culture, right? There's a certain way of doing things. When you um, call someone and you want to talk to them about something, you don't, when they say hello, you don't launch right into it, do you? you, you there's about 30 seconds to a minute where it's, it's, general pleasantries or things like that, and then you'll say something, you know, after some joking or some lighthearted talk, you'll say, well, listen, the reason I was calling, and then you'll state it, right? Emails have a subject line, so we communicate through those now, you know, that will help. But in Paul's day, letters had a a way of telling you, this is really what I want to talk about. This is really why I'm writing you. You identified yourself, which it does in verse 1. Then the people to whom you were writing in verse 2, you greeted them with peace. Normally, in verse 3, Paul, because of God's kindness to him, would always add grace to that or usually add grace. You'd give thanks for the other person, whether for their health or their friendship or something else. That's verses 4 to 9. Once these introductory things, standard in a letter, were out of the way, you would turn to the reason for your letter, which is what we come to tonight, beginning in verse 10. That all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Now, in the light of all the issues that will come up throughout this letter, it, it might seem like unity is not the most pressing issue in Corinth. This church had real problems. We, we touched on it a little bit last week. I mean, again, I, I don't bring it up because I like saying the word. I don't. But you had an issue of incest in the church, which is a big deal. And, and that's not the main issue here. Now, it is a major issue, but it isn't the main thing. Again, we know that from the structure of the letter. And so it just might say, really, Paul, the, the main thing that the Corinthians need to be concerned about is their unity with all this other craziness going on. Maybe Paul's just easing into the letter with some low-hanging fruit. He'll get to the meat, you know, the controversial stuff later on because all Christians need to have unity. Maybe that's all he's doing, but it, it isn't. Here's the thing, beloved. If you consider all the major problems there were in Corinth, almost all of them could be traced back to a combination of pride and division. Division resulting from pride in the church. He'll address 
pride and division specifically in chapters 1 through 4. That's really what it's all about here. Sexual ethics in 5 and 6. Litigation in chapter 6. Marriage in chapter 7. Idols and food in chapters 8 through 10. Corporate worship in chapter 11. Spiritual gifts in 12 through 14. Even the resurrection. Their belief in the resurrection was an issue also in chapter 15. Each of those issues, you could take it on its own and write a whole letter about it and, and go on and on about it. But Paul has wisdom from God. Remember, he's being inspired, led by the Holy Spirit here. He can see the common thread running through all of this nonsense, common in all the problems. So he addresses the main issue up front here and gets to the specifics later. 1 Corinthians is ultimately an appeal to the church for unity. That's the essence of what is happening here. And Paul makes his appeal for unity by turning immediately to the only thing that can actually bring unity, God's unity, to a church. The preaching of the cross of Jesus Christ. The cross of Jesus Christ is the only way to unify the church because it is the ultimate smite on self-importance. So let me pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. Lord, we love Your Word in our church. We ask You that it would truly be our standard, that we would be willing to hear it, Father, to receive it with meekness because it is Your power in the Gospel to save our souls. Lord, let us listen to You. Let us listen to You. I pray, Father, that You would help me preach tonight. Please help me do justice to this text. Please help all of us to hear and receive Your truth. I ask this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let me read verse 10, beginning here in verse 10, 1 Corinthians 1. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. <clears throat> Listen one more time. It would be the third time. Listen to verse 10 one more time. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Now, I wonder, right, and I, I mean that very sincerely, I wonder how many of us would kind of chuckle at Paul here with some pity, kind of, and maybe, you know, sort of condescendingly put our arm around him and say, Paul, buddy, I, I know you mean well, but that's, that's a pipe dream. That's not going to happen in the church, Paul. People are people. That's impossible. You have to accept that. You have to learn to deal with the fact. That they'll never be of the same mind and the same judgment. Paul, come on. You have to make room for all these different opinions and preferences and all these things because that's just how people are. You're swimming upstream if you're trying to get people 
to be united. There be no divisions among them. And they all have the same mind and the same judgment. Paul, that's crazy. And it doesn't take too long in the real world to agree with that response or feel the, you know, the sense of that response to Paul. People are people. And we all, whether it's church or work or wherever it is, we know how impossible that kind of unity and like-mindedness are. But we aren't in the world here. This is not normal society where people are just people and we have to learn to accept that. Beloved, no. No. What if that's not a pipe dream? What if it's precisely what Jesus Christ can accomplish in His church? What if that's attainable? Paul's wishful thinking isn't the source of his counsel here. The Holy Spirit of Almighty God is the source of these words. Paul's appeal comes from Jesus through him to the church in Corinth and by that same Holy Spirit to us tonight in Moundsville. There are quarrels in the Corinthian church. They fight a lot. They divide a lot. Paul knows about this because people from Chloe's household, one of the members there, have told him that. We know that in verse 11. There are factions in the community, and in particular they identify uh, with different spiritual leaders. That's what has happened in the church. There, um, people are attaching themselves to one of their leaders and different ones, right? <clears throat> Paul, Apollos, Peter, he's called here by his Aramaic name, Kephas, I think is how you say it, and Christ in verse 12. Now, it's hard to say um, what these various groups, why these various groups took these different names for themselves. Were the Paul group or the Apollos group were but we can speculate with some insight here based on each one. Chapters 2 and 3 and 12 to 14 clearly show that we have some among these believers who think they're more spiritual than everybody else. Uh, we have others who love worldly wisdom, and they're the ones that we know that idols are not real. They don't actually exist in chapters 1 and 8 through 10. Then there are others who are much more cautious, apparently, about both of those groups and would be regarded as weak by either of those groups, or maybe by both of those groups. And then you have this final group, I follow Christ, which, ah, yes, you're the ones that get it all right. You know, we follow Christ. You're the pure ones, right? Now, what we do know is that each of these four men would have been furious to see their names used in such a way, other than Christ, right? That's not what these men were about, Paul, Apollos, and Peter, there are Christian leaders who desperately want you to identify yourselves with them and with their name and their way of following the Lord. They, they, they're trying to make another one of them with you, right? There are others who would be appalled if you even hinted at such a thing. And Paul is one of those. And this is Paul we're talking about. He's absolutely horrified that his name is being used to create another faction, be another occasion for division in the church of Jesus Christ. So in verse 13, Paul very quickly decimates the thinking that would wreak such destruction, be a part of such an issue in the church. Look there again, if you would, verse 13. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? If Christ is not divided, Paul's argument is, how in the world can the church that bears his name be divided? Paul wasn't crucified for you. I love the way that he says that, talking about himself. So how can you possibly put his name alongside the name of Jesus? The only one who has the clout to be Lord of the church and create categories in it is the one who was crucified for it. 
Christ. Don't let anyone else make you their servant. That's, that's not discipleship. You weren't baptized in the name of Paul, were you? So why would you put loyalty to Paul ahead of loyalty to the body of Christ? Because what loyalty to a name does is cause division because you're against the people that aren't for your name and your God or your whatever it is, right? Paul's so angry that he forgets how many people he's even baptized in the first place. In verses 14 and 16, he has to come back parenthetically. Parenthetically, oh, I did baptize the household of Stephanus. He's extremely upset here. And the Holy Spirit leaves that in this writing. But he makes his point because he wants to remind the Corinthians that their allegiance is to Jesus, not to him or any other leader they have in the faith. Paul was not sent in verse 17 to merely perform rites, as if baptism is just this rite, so that people could use his name for themselves. You know, that that guy did that thing to me, so I'm special because of his primary mission was to preach the gospel of the cross of Jesus Christ in which all human importance comes to nothing. And there it is. There's the link between the cross and the lack of unity. And beloved, this is it. Alright? If the cross is not deliberately central in the church, the self will be. Where there is a lack of unity in the church... The issue is not, you know, a lack of programming or something. It's not the style of music. It's not whether you have a choir or an ensemble or this event or that class. That's not the cause of disunity in the church. Those are all factions. Not that it's necessarily sinful for any of them to exist. It's that if we pull away, these are factions. That there's there are groups that are set up to, for this thing, right? Right, wrong, or indifferent. I'm not making a statement about any of those things I said. I'm saying that they are factions, right? Because you're in or you're out. But those things aren't really why there isn't unity. Those are the places where everyone is, is trying to get their own way. Trying to get recognition, maybe. Trying to have their say. Make their statement, Right? That's what those things become. The lack of unity doesn't come from the pastor. It doesn't come from the leaders not giving in, you know, so that each and every faction and its specific demands and preferences are met. That's how bullies operate, not Christians, right? The lack of unity comes from the fact that no matter what a church says it believes or claims to be about, where there is a lack of unity, the issue is that the cross is not central. That's the issue. It's not big enough and it's not important enough. Something else is being allowed to shape the culture and the direction of the church. That's why there's not unity. Be it, in this case, someone's name or someone's wallet or someone's agenda. Something else is being allowed to shape and drive the culture of a church. That's where disunity comes from. As long as it's there, there won't be unity. And when the self is central, there can and will be no unity. Paul gets right down to it. The what of the lack of unity is that the cross is not central. Now, the question of how the cross being central facilitates unity, how does the cross being central help unity? Preaching. Preaching. How does the cross become central 
so that unity results. We get to the end of self-importance that kills unity by the preaching of the cross in verse 17. Have you ever thought about how strange it is that he goes from this talk about disunity and discord right in verse 17 to what he preaches and why he preaches it? Right? Why, why would people ever get mad at or tired of or annoyed by the constant preaching of the cross and of Christ as all-sufficient? Why would people be annoyed by the insistence Paul has to make everything a cross issue, even preaching? Beloved, it's simple if I may say that. If the cross is big, we are not big. And there's the rub. There's the rub. If the preacher isn't making everything about us and what we can do or must do, then we don't like to hear it. Preaching that relies on eloquent wisdom so that people think the preacher is a big deal fuels that desire we all have within us to be great and to be important. And that's how factions form. That's how people get in their corner in the church and are willing to fight if you threaten it, right? The preaching of the cross threatens self-importance like nothing else in the world does. And so those who are obsessed with themselves grow weary of it and come up with creative ways to question it and degrade it and downplay it. And Paul says that's the issue here. That's the issue. Of course, they, of course, people, it's the smite. Preaching the cross is the smite on, I follow such and such. I do such and such. The, the preaching of the cross ultimately always cuts that kind of nonsense out at the knees. It makes everything in the church about the cross. Paul says that preaching that feeds the self, that helps create disunity, that empties the cross of its power. To build unity in the church. And listen, this isn't the offensive part yet. Right? But the offensive part of the text is yet to come because he's going to go deeper here. He's just laying the groundwork of how the cross is central to all this. Haven't we all, we've all had occasion in our lifetimes, you've been in the church for longer than 20 years in your life, you've probably marveled at some point at the things church folks are willing to fight and divide and split over. We all have these stories, right? It's, it's unreal, right? How do people of the cross get to the point where they are willing to fight over things like pews and chairs or like the color of carpet or something? Why are there so many of these stories? How does that happen? Because the cross is not central. It's not shaping the culture. It's not shaping the people. People are shaping the culture. And people, by nature, are selfish Right? How, how could we ever get to the point where, I use the rhetorical we, right? We aren't fighting over that here. But how, how could people ever get to the point where they'll split a church over the color of a carpet? I mean, how, how do you jive that with Christ? You, know, you, you don't, the, the color of a carpet, the hosting of an event, the, the state of the trees, the state of the decoration, you know, whatever it is, people will, again, we, we don't, I'm using that as an example because it's sitting here, but people will, Churches will split over stuff like this. My my grandma gave that nativity scene, and so, which I don't know who gave us the nativity scene. But like, my grandma gave us that, and if we don't use it, and it's like, you'll, you'll split the church over that. You'll fight and get mean and nasty. That this, How does that happen? Where the cross is not central, a vacuum is created, and the self will fill it every time. 
the self is selfish. That's the problem. That's what the self is. It's, it's not good. It's selfish. In the flesh dwells nothing good. That's Romans. That, that's Bible. So listen now as Paul will lay out here precisely how it is that the church itself is the result of the cross and will therefore always be shaped by it and by it alone. Meaning that where the cross is not and does not shape the church, the self will be actively destroying the church. Pick it up in verse 18. For, because you figure, he's talking to Christians here. Why, why is he going on here about the cross? Because that's the problem in Corinth. For the word of the cross, the preaching it, is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. So if you fancied yourself wise and discerning, God just told you, yeah, I'm out to destroy you and put an end to your nonsense. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Now you're learning what the problem is in Corinth. For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers, and here it is. This is offensive. He says to, the, to Corinth, just look at yourselves, right? For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Really, Paul? Did you just say that to us? That not many of us were that smart? Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God shows what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God shows what is weak in the world to shame the strong. You hear what he's saying to the people. God shows what is low and despised in the world. Even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. No one else. These factions you have. What are you doing? He said. How can you think so highly of yourself? He's saying. Who do you all think you are is what Paul is saying to the Corinthians. How in the world could any of you be so self-important or think so highly of yourselves? He says, you don't even know who you are, do you? You've gotten it in your heads that you're something. right? You have the ability. The primary problem in the church and Paul's main reason for writing this letter in the first place is division in verse 10. But why are we divided? How do Christians get like that, like we were talking about earlier? Why are we divided? We divide because of pride. And the root of factionalism is almost always self-importance and arrogance. So before engaging with the factions and leaders in more detail, 
in some of the following chapters, Paul looks first to cut the legs out from underneath worldly divisions by skewering human pride that leads to them. He does this by drawing a series of contrasts here. Wise, foolish, strong, weak, influential, lowly, and showing how the gospel puts you on the wrong side of all those things. In our preaching, our message, and in our very existence, we are foolish and weak and lowly. So, if we're going to blow our trumpets about anything, it had better not be ourselves or any human leaders. Rather, let the one who boasts, because that's what they're doing, by having these factions and being willing to divide the church over them. They're boasting in themselves, Paul said. And the issue is that you're not listening to or hearing the preaching of the cross enough. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord, in verse 31. So now, when you hear that, right? When they hear it in Corinth, when they hear it here, now who wants to be a part of the church? If if this is the place where all self-importance and delusions of self-grandeur go to die, now who wants to stick around and make it their thing? Now who wants to be identified with it? Paul is saying It's a collection of fools and losers. Right? Right? That's what Scripture teaches. That's offensive. Weaklings, he says. Well, I thought it was about image. No. No. Who wants to stay if it means being identified as a fool rather than a genius? As not so great rather than a really big deal. Paul teaches that none of us got in here because we're something to brag about. So what exactly is the place of self-importance and factions and preferences and agendas? How in the world are they allowed to take root in the church of Jesus Christ? Who in here is so great that they should have their own thing. Do we not realize who we are? Do we not realize what the cross as our banner says about us? And that what it says is by design so that Christ may look great and not us. But we we have to be asking, how in the world does the me monster find a place in the church of Jesus Christ where nobody has been chosen for their wisdom and their skill? As though God needed it. Dear God, we have this so backwards. We have it so backwards. Right? Have you ever, have you ever said, I've, I've said it. Maybe you've heard others say it, talking about somebody. Man, if, if he would get saved, if she would get saved, imagine the effect they could have on the kingdom. You know? That's a strange thing to say in light of this text. If you aren't doing your part, if if you aren't giving your contribution, it may be that the Lord won't be able to get done what He wants to get done if you don't pull your weight. See what that does? You see what that preaching does? It feeds pride. It feeds the self. Oh, I need to step up. You need to break down. That's when we're usable. Not when the Lord lays everything on the table and we say, you know what, I brought some of my own stuff that can help with this.
do we not believe in the cross? Because it, Paul is implying that in Corinth, their issue is very basic. The cross is not central here. And as a, think of it as a church, you hear that and you say, what do you mean the cross is not central? We're all about the cross. Not where there are divisions and factions. Then you're not about the cross, Paul says. Paul says, I don't care what you say. I don't care how you were founded, right? As they were, as you learn about Corinth in Acts 18. How can there ever be unity where the self is so valued? Not that the self needs devalued, but how can there be unity when the self is so important? Not only are we not ashamed of the lack of unity, we, we wear our division like a badge of honor because, because we, we value it when every voice is heard. Beloved, not every voice needs to be heard. Right? I mean, we, we, how did we come to think that? No wonder the cross is an uninvited guest in the church. It's this embarrassing, annoying burden because it's constantly chipping away at self-importance. Christian preaching is fundamentally foolish and mundane, at least in the eyes of the world. shouldn't be like that in here. It shouldn't be annoying and mundane in here. It should be like that in the world, and yet it is considered not enough, mundane. Andrew Wilson writes that the world in Paul's day had all sorts of these wonderful techniques to make its messages more acceptable. That was a big thing in Greece and Rome, right? Wisdom, eloquence, intelligence, legal reasoning, philosophy. We read about that in verses 17 through 20 here. Our generation, the 21st century, and we've added the power of advertising to that, popular music, newspapers, movies, websites, television shows all pushing a particular vision of the true, the good, and the beautiful. And the better you present it, the more plausible it is. The more you want to buy it, the more you like it, the more you're drawn toward it, right? Meanwhile, the church is stuck with a method that looked foolish in ancient Corinth and looks even more foolish now, just preaching. Just preaching. I've, I've read books about I've read church growth books about that. You live in a society where people are not going to sit down anymore and listen to a sermon. Well, then what do we do? We keep doing the same thing. We insist that God's way is right. Not with tricks or stunts, not with high-budget special effects or virtual reality immersive experiences. Not with wisdom or eloquence. No, no, no. Lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power in verse 17. The more we try to prop it up, the more we're robbing it of its power. The person is not supposed to be the message. Just proclaiming what God has done in Christ and trusting that God will use that message to turn people's lives the right way up. That's what we do. That's who we are. You can hear church people, not necessarily just our church, but just church people, you know, American evangelicalism kind of in general. Just You can hear it as if what's needed is more us, more me, more of my contribution and my unique thing that I can give and more me out there. No, they need the cross out there. The same cross that Paul preached, the same one that's embarrassing, Foolishness to the world and foolish to the world because that's where God says the power is. And the cross isn't welcome out there. Never will be. So 
Therefore, we should adjust our expectations accordingly, beloved. We think the more skilled speaker you get, the more people you'll pull in. Have you read 1 Corinthians? What should be expected when the cross is insistently proclaimed as central? Are we going to attach the world's values and the world's understanding to the effectiveness of preaching and say, if you did it well, we get more people. If we presented it like this, we get more people. You see how infected we are with the world? We honestly think that. Well, they're, they're not counting numbers in Corinth. Right? This, this isn't the issue. God says, do that and I'll do the work. I'll give, he's going to say later on, you throw out the seed. I'll give the growth. You just do what I told you to do. What has to happen? The self then has to die. The self then has to say, oh, okay, God, I'll back off. You get front and center. Get the cross front and center. I, I, I do have some good ideas, but I'm right. You may, but step out. God doesn't need them. We often don't want the cross in church, let alone out in the world. Paul was not a good preacher by good preaching standards. He was talked about for not being a good speaker. Right, just we, we, we've got to turn this on its head. Now, hopefully it's obvious that Paul is not arguing that you just preach dull, rambling, monotone sermons with no imagination. Right? That preachers don't need to study. Right? Just trust the Spirit and all that. No, just in this letter alone, Paul proves that's not what he's arguing for. This does not read like a, a man with no knowledge wrote it. Right? He's witty. He's direct. He gives great illustrations. He's concise and rhetorical. He's funny and incisive. The argument he's making here is for recognizing where the power to save people and unite the church actually comes from. Not from the polish or the gimmicks or the presentation. It comes from the proclamation of Jesus Christ crucified and risen. Now, using that as a recruitment strategy in a world saturated with visual stimulation, that's pure foolishness to the world. The world should be the one saying, why do you keep insisting on the preaching of the cross? We don't like it. It's not attractive. It's not fun enough. You need to compete with the bells and whistles. And No, we don't. And we never have and we never will. That won't work. You see, you have to wow people nowadays. No, no, you don't. That was how God saved the Corinthians. That's what Paul's saying. How did he save you? And that's how he saved everyone that's gotten saved before or since. Right? Look at 21 again. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. So why would we use that as the strategy? It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Every member of the Corinthian church had the same testimony. They were saved by simply hearing the message of Christ crucified. They are the living proof that preaching works. It doesn't matter if there's two of them or a million of them. Right? Because salvation is a supernatural event. You can have one believer. They have as much power to change the world as a church of 10,000 does. They have the same message. They are the living proof that preaching worked. Numbers don't prove whether the preaching of the cross is sufficient. We don't ask how many. We ask how. 
And they had forgotten it. They had come to think a little too much of themselves. And the message that saved them had become dull to them because it wasn't doing what they thought it should be doing in their community. It wasn't impressing. See, they're using their own talents and wisdom and abilities and thinking that that will help aid the message. That's why Paul hits so hard at that idea here. It wasn't bringing the people in in droves. People weren't impressed with them or their message and it hurt their pride. And it turned their eyes away from the cross and put them on themselves to be the catalyst of change. It's not just the method that is foolishness, beloved. It's the message that is foolishness also. Look at 22. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. All this stuff we try to give, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews. Folly to Gentiles. We know from the four Gospels that Jewish people were eager for signs that would accompany and authorize the Messiah. We're familiar with that impulse in people. People today, there are, there are people today that crave experiences as the validation of something. You can draw tons of people to your church if you promise them an experience because you're, you're scratching an itch that many in the world have. The preaching of the cross won't always give an experience. You won't always get a feeling. You won't always have an event. Greek people, on the other hand, they generally crave wisdom. In the same way that many modern people might prize reason or science, even you know, over against experiences, right? You have that same type of person today. Now, if this is how Jesus says it is, that the, the method of preaching and the message that is preached are foolishness to the world. There's nothing you can do about that. And you can't rely on your ingenuity and your wisdom and your talents to make the message more palpable. If we know that Jesus says that's how it is, how did we ever get it in our heads that we could market the cross in such a way that it would just explode and you'll have to break the walls down to make more room? We became self-important, beloved, and we quit making the cross central. Now we honestly think, even in light of what the clear teaching of Scripture is, that the, the only sign that preaching is good is if the numbers are high. Because that's how the world measures things. It's sales. Right? Do you have, do you have more profit or less? Paul says that to a world where people either seek signs or wisdom... A crucified Messiah, which is the only thing we have to preach, it's going to look like a complete contradiction to people who crave experiences, and it'll look like absolute insanity to everyone else. And we, we say, no, if, if you're polished and impressive enough and you have enough bells and whistles, you can get by all that. See, Paul was just lazy. Paul was just unimaginative. And yet, when this crazy, foolish message is heard by people whom God has called, whether they are Jews or Gentiles, it shows itself for what it is in God's time and in God's way every single time. It is the power and the wisdom of God in verse 24. It's not our power and wisdom, but it is the power and wisdom of God. To us, power and wisdom are totally different things. The most foolish thing God has ever done is infinitely wiser than the cleverest thing human beings have ever come up with. So we should trust Him. And having shown the utter foolishness of Christian preaching and the Christian message, Paul is ready to deliver the punchline, which is what he does starting in verse 26. The very existence of the Corinthian church is utter foolishness. 
Paul says, look at yourselves. When you became believers, you weren't this high-powered, rich, super-talented group of movers and shakers. And Verse 26, but God saved you anyway. He took hold of the weak, the shameful, the vulnerable, the poor, the poorly educated, and he turned them, you, into living demonstrations of his transforming grace. The fact that this church exists at all is proof that God chooses foolish things over wise things. The existence of a church is proof that God chooses foolish things over wise things. So that, in verses 27 to 29, no one may boast before Him. We see how death to self in light of God's grace at the cross is the very DNA of the church. Or the church is not a church. It's a man-made creation. You are not wise and righteous and holy and redeemed because of your backgrounds, because of what we bring to the table or even have the potential for. But because, as Paul says, and points out to them, you're that because you are in Christ Jesus, in verse 30. You were foolish people who heard a foolish message preached in a foolish way. And God has demonstrated His wisdom so powerfully in you that the smartest people on earth are left scratching their heads. They're not drawn to it. They're left scratching their heads, wondering how God did such a thing with what they're looking at. So in verse 31, if a Christian is going to boast about anything, which is what having these factions in their church are, don't lose that contextual issue here. That, that, that's, verse 31 is because of the issue that's happening in verses 10 and following. You're boasting, Paul says, and you're boasting in yourselves. If a Christian is going to boast, they should boast in the Lord. Beloved, Paul has made this point as the key to ending their divisions. Paul has made this point so that all of them agree. And there aren't any more divisions among them in verse 10. The cross of Jesus Christ is the only way to unity in the church because it's the ultimate smite on self-importance, which is precisely what keeps the cross from being central in the church. And the preaching of the cross in its foolishness and this foolish method that the world is never really like, that's the way the cross will become central. That's how it will create unity. The what of unity is the cross. The how of unity is the preaching of the cross. If the cross is not central, beloved, the self will be. Because how, how do we hear, how do we tonight, we're not Corinth, we're Moundsville, how do we hear those words in verses 26 to 31? Alright, the church will always have a difficult time accepting God's method and message. We've got to be mindful of that because at its core, that message says to us, you're, you're not a big deal. You're not a big deal. You're a group of fools for Christ's sake. Right? You're, 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 you're not wise. You're not amazing. You're not all these wonder... You, you, stop it. Right? You're here to prove that Christ is everything. So all eyes on Him. We, we, we won't ever be what the Bible calls us without that realization, right? And, and look, it's, it's, 
obviously it feels insulting. But this, this is not a schoolyard bully trying to make us feel stupid. No, no, that's not what's happening here. Beloved, the world has been turned upside down by the cross of Jesus Christ. And we are in the thick of it. He's coming. He's returning. Right? There is no more time for, but I thought, I thought I was a big deal. Shh. No. No, eternity's coming. Eternity's coming. Christ is all. He's not, again, I don't, I don't want to sound like that to you. I, I, I don't want you to think that's what Paul is doing. He's not being a bully to us. He's saying you've you got to knock it off. Right? The, you, the cross is everything. We often want to use God, I think, to make us into something special, to help us realize these dreams we have of self-importance, even if we don't know Jesus. We all have this yearning to be great, to be well thought of and respected and a big deal and all that. And Then we come into the church, and what is the church? God is not interested in your righteousness. He's, he doesn't need you. Right, and so it's it's just it's this it's a daily dying to the self that if it doesn't happen will affect the church. It'll come out in factions in the church. That's how the pride that we all have will come out in the church. Divisions, a lack of unity. Right, that's the primary proof that the cross is not central because factions are the result of self-importance. Where the cross is big, factions look like what they are. And they don't last. Not only will God not help us realize these dreams we have to be important, He will actively oppose us because He loves us to bring us completely under the shadow of the cross. The gospel is cut right through everything to which the Corinthians were committed. Their boasting, their arrogance, their tendency to look for status, the way that the surrounding culture did. They wanted to be a part of of their culture. They wanted to be respected and thought highly of and a big deal. And when they walked around, people knew who they were. And, that, that, and, and Paul says, you see, that's killing you. But that's not what we're about. They don't need to see that. They don't need to see you succeeding. They don't need to see you being a big deal. They need to see Christ on the cross for them. I know it's foolish. I know preaching it and trusting in preaching to accomplish it is foolish, Paul says. That's God's design. At the root of it all is whether or not we believe the Word of God. Why, why, why had they exalted their leaders? Because that gave them a category in which to make much of themselves. This guy will facilitate the desire I have to be important. That's a recipe for disaster in the church. And we're all expert chefs in that kitchen. The message of Christ crucified seems foolish to the world, and yet it possesses the power of God to save people. Despite the influences of contemporary thinking about what is wise and what is foolish, the message of the cross reveals God's power and God's wisdom to those who are being saved. In light of this, the wisdom and strength of men and women are reduced to nothing. The Corinthian Christians themselves Paul says, provide evidence for his argument that people are called by God in Christ through God's choosing and according to God's purposes. They demonstrate that God's wisdom triumphs over human wisdom. 
That's what it means to call yourself a Christian. Are you willing to say that? Are you willing to be identified like that? There's only one ground left on which to boast. The Lord Himself who has done it all. Beloved, that's why we're here. This is what God has done by creating this church. I know you. Right? You're not stupid people. That's not what Paul means. Right? But we are here as evidence of the fact that God doesn't need or choose the best and the brightest. But those who will make His grace and His power the most important and necessary things. That is offensive. And it's precisely what God intends to do. So all of us, often especially the pastor, need to get over our self-importance. Or there will never be the unity God desires for His church. And a church where there is no unity is a church where there is no witness and no power. Paul teaches us the what of unity as the end of self-importance at the cross. How that ends self-importance and brings unity is by the preaching of the cross. God makes His people what He desires them to be through the word of the cross in preaching. A foolish method, a foolish message. And at the foot of the cross, we do find the end of ourselves, yes. But we also find the beginning of God for us in Christ no matter how harsh the words on the page seem. They are there because God loves the Corinthians. With all their disunity and all their self-importance and all their mess, God sends them Paul with a word as he comes to us tonight with a word of grace and peace in the midst of our self-importance. Let us hear the word of the Lord. It is firm. It is eternal.